Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, author of Epic Fantasy Romance. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Ah, wonderful. Today is, say it with me, people, it is Friday. Woohoo! Uh, it is January 26th. Um, the 26th, 24. So, um, I feel like it's been a week. Has it been a week for everyone? <laughs> I mean, that's a funny saying, right? Cause it's always been a week, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, I think it's been fine for me, but it just seems like a lot of people are having meltdowns. A lot of people feeling stressed. I don't know what the deal is. Um, Maybe politics have people down. Maybe it's January, winter. Uh, on my Discord, people report in every morning for writing, which I love. Um, and several people were saying that they were struggling today. Um, so as if, if you're one of those people, you know, cheers to you. I hope you can uh, find some solace and some rest this morning. Um. Reaching back to Monday's podcast, uh, I don't know if any of you go back and like revisit comments on the YouTube video. If you only listen and don't watch YouTube, it's interesting because I get comments in all sorts of different places. And so uh, it's no single place for a conversation, which sometimes I regret. But, you know, I also want people to be able to just access however they want to access. Um but my bestie, Grace Draven, who listens, hi, Grace, uh, commented that she had read an interview with Enya. So if you didn't listen to Monday's podcast, I was talking about how I'd seen a post about Enya, how she never tours, that she lives in a castle in Ireland, because if you could live in a castle in Ireland, why wouldn't you? And she doesn't, people come to her, she records there. And she stays in. And I'm fascinated by this. There's a part of me that has always been fascinated by the idea of, of the hermitage, of being sequestered, cloistered. Um, there's a part of me that is very attracted to the idea of joining, you know, like a, a, holy, a holy cloister, uh, becoming a nun taking a vow of silence and only focusing on like gardening and cooking and reading and writing. Uh, for those of you who know how absolutely irreverent and um, not into church I am, you will find that amusing. But I mean, why can't it be like a Taoist cloister? I would like that. Anyway, uh, Grace commented that she, I want to find it now. Hold on. So Grace Darling said, I recently watched an older interview with Enya who said she doesn't want to be known for herself. She wants to be known only for her music. That philosophy has allowed her to remain intensely private and I think built expectations for her fans that prevent them from demanding her know, to know her life's details. And Grace adds that she likes this. And yeah, there's really something to that. Um, as much as we talk about, and I know that this is advice I give, that readers follow 
authors. They don't follow publishers. Um, the exception to this might be on Kindle Unlimited where readers follow particular subgenre trends. But for the most part, readers follow authors. They find a voice they like, they find a storyteller they like, and they're going to follow that person, which means that the author is therefore the consistent brand. But at the same time, it's very, very important that we separate ourselves from the person and the product, right? Um, and, and I hesitate to use the word product, uh, but I mean it as in the thing that we create. Maybe I should say creation. Let's go with that. The person and the creation. Uh, and I, I know I've talked about many times on here that something that I work hard to do is to make sure to create a verbal division between myself and my work. So instead of saying, I won an award, I try to say, my book won an award. Or instead of saying, somebody rejected me, um, I will say, the book was rejected. And it really helps, because words matter, right? And the way we frame things matters. And yeah, it really makes a difference to, to create that separation. Just as Enya is doing, she wants to be remembered for her music, not for herself. Uh, and, and we can see how these things are very tied up um, because our creation comes from us, right? Um, the best definition I've ever heard of voice is that it is what emerges from ourselves, from our beliefs, and that you spend a lot of time as a creator refining your voice uh, and making it come through purely, but it's, it's still in it. It's still who you are. And that's why ideas don't matter so much as how you transmit them, right? That's where the creation comes in. So it, it's not easy. It's not easy to separate these things, right? It's, it's not an easy balance. Um, and I think that you could choose to be and Enya and, and go that route, which obviously has its allure. But I also know there are those of you out there listening talking to me sometimes who are, you know, putting out their first books and feeling that relentless pressure to market, right? Feeling that you have to do um, all of these things, right? To get yourself out there, to get your books out there. And it's, it's, it's a conundrum. Um, but I think the important thing to remember for all of us to remember is to not make yourself crazy. Right. Um, and I mean that in a very literal way. I mean, we throw that about, uh, and is kind of, um, you know, metaphorical or slang. Oh, he makes me crazy or, you know, this job is driving me crazy, but there, there is a very real factor, right. Of, that if you're not careful, you, you can, um, you know, it, disturb your mental peace. You can have a mental breakdown 
Um, I know several people have been talking about that sort of recognizing. The, oh, sorry. That was Captain. Uh, I don't know what he was barking at. There wasn't anything. He doesn't bark often. So anyway, I think I probably don't have a lot more to say on that, except that, you know, just cut yourself some slack. Um, there are, there are people out there. Okay. So let me talk about this a little bit. It's been all the rage in the writing world to do these, um, this Clifton strengths assessment. Right. And I, I know I've talked about it because I, I did it. A couple of my friends were like, well, do yours, do yours, figure out what yours are. And there's a gal, um, Becca Syme, who does, uh, you know, apparently some really great coaching related to that. And she's trained in it and everything, but she helps people, you know, they take the assessment and you can get like your five strengths or your 10 strengths or all the way down to 36. And then she helps people according to, you know, like, how this can make you work better as an author, avoid burnout, all of this kind of thing. And, uh, and I, yeah, so I got my top five and I'd mentioned it cause like my number one is connectedness, which I find kind of funny, <laughs> but I think in some ways that that is sanity preserving for me. When people ask me why I don't get caught up in some of these dramas, I think that's part of why, because, of my, I don't know for, I don't know if I have a better, I haven't taken the class, so I just read up a little bit on it, but I think some of it is the, the Taoism is my sense of being connected to all people and all things, being one with the Tao, right? And I saw a couple of authors talking about this the other day, and they were kind of matching their Clifton strengths and their categories by colors. And they're like, Oh, I envy you, you know, like this color and that kind of thing. And it turned out that two of these people, like among their top strengths were competitiveness. And, and it didn't surprise me because it was like, Oh, I guess that's partly why this is a useful test for people because it was, um, Oh, well, yeah, that explains why, they come across as so competitive and, and I don't think I've talked about this in a long time, but I am, I am not a fan of competition. Uh, and it's something that I discovered through many years of study, again, of Taoism, that competitiveness through that lens is considered to be a kind of poison that affects uh, mainly the person feeling it, but then also the people around it. And, and when I tell people this, there's always a certain percentage of people who are eager to tell me how very wrong I am. Uh, especially people who come out of like the American and I'm going to just say American, maybe it's true in other places, but you know, like the sports system, you know, where it, they're taught that like competition is good, you know, and, you know, learning to work with a team and they'll tell me, you know, like how competition drove them to do X, Y, Z. And maybe if competition is one, competitiveness is one of your strengths, that's true, you know, because, because you want to rely on your strengths. You want to rely on those things, those skills that work best for you. Right. 
but I think being competitive is a poison. Um, and I'm very much a believer in comparison is the thief of joy that if you compare yourself to other people that you, it will not make you happy. It's just never going to make you happy because you will always find someone else who seems to be having more or doing better. And I think authors are thrust into competition with each other. Uh, the whole, you know, getting so many ratings, the rankings, you know, like whose book is above whose book and who's selling better than someone else. And, and there was something that happened this week in one of my author groups where one of the people who does the coordinating um, puts up weekly discussion topics and they asked for authors to share how long it took them to become successful. And I had talked to her one-on-one -on -one, and I know that her intention was to show people that success doesn't come overnight, that it's not an immediate thing. Uh, and, you know, and so for me, when I address this, and she specifically asked me to weigh in because I am the, uh, the cane shaker. I feel like, you know, like I have my wand here where I can wave for permission or give you blessings. And then I reverse it and it's the cane shaking where I'm like, you kids get off my lawn. Um, I don't know when I became uh, the age that I am, <laughs> but it happened along the way. And the truth is, is that I have been a published writer for 30 years now. I don't know how that happened. And, you know, and now I have 65 published titles and yeah, I have, you know, seen it come around and go around a bunch of times now. So when I weighed in to, to talk about this, the first thing I did was say, it really depends on how you define success. And I told the story, which I've told many times, but I feel like, I see people ask the same questions over and over again. So I figure eh, it's good to repeat stuff because there's always someone new coming into the scene. Um, but, you know, I started out as an essayist. And so my first success was having an essay published. And I was so excited about that. And then I had, um, you know, like a number of successes like that. And I wanted to make my living as a writer. So I was building that career. And this is a long time ago. This is the early mid nineties. And, uh, before blogging really kicked in and I sold an essay to Redbook, which I don't know if it's still out there, but great big women's magazine. And they paid me a dollar a word. And so I got paid $3,000 for one essay, which was even more money back in 1994. And it was, it was amazing. It was really wonderful. And people said to me, congratulations, you've made it. And I can't tell you how many times people said to me, you've made it. And if I had been able to work it so that yes, I was selling one piece a month, for $3,000, then I could have been, uh, I could have quit the day job and become a writer. But of course, freelancing doesn't work this way, you know, and ideally it's like, well, maybe you'd sell several 
um, articles at one time and, you know, you space it out, which is great if you do that. But, you know, that particular editor left the magazine. I didn't sell anything again to Red Book. Uh, and not long after that, blogging caused uh, magazines to crash. Writing became cheapened. And, uh, you know, it was became, you know, like never again for a dollar a word. You know, and I have I have novels that have never made that much money. Most of them have made much more than that, but I do have a few that have never made that much money. So, anyway, the the point is, I do have one. Um, you know, what is that measure of success for me? You know, there have been various milestones, and you know, it's thirty years in. I just got my first six figure deal, which I'm thrilled about. Uh, it makes me really happy, but you know, that didn't happen right away. I wanted that to happen in the mid nineties, right? But it happened when it happened. And in some ways I'm very glad that my career has had a slow trajectory because this is what I wanted. I didn't want to be flash in the pan, crash and burn, which I saw happen over and over again. But part of what happened in this is that a lot of people, especially some of the ones who rank them, you know, say, oh, well, that they have this high competitiveness. They're very happy to jump in and right away say, um, you know, I ended up making $50,000 self-publishing um, by my fourth book. And, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with somebody saying that. It's, it's good to illustrate the successes. But the thing is, is that it, it's like survivorship bias. You are always going to hear these kinds of stories where people have something great to say. Uh, the people who really hit it and like, you know, some of them really planned it out and they did great. You know, they wrote the book, they launched their series in a particular order. They did the marketing, all this kind of thing. And they hit that KU algorithm and made a whole bunch of money by the third or fourth book. And they're excited about it. And it's wonderful. And congratulations to them. But it doesn't work for everybody. And so the people it doesn't work for, they feel like they did something wrong. Right? And, and that's not the case. Sometimes, sometimes it's just the book doesn't hit. Um, Sometimes, and this is the thing about self-publishing, and I, I was struck by something that a friend, one of the aspiring writers, um, and I'm calling her aspiring because, you know, like she's got a couple of, you know, things out so far and working on the next, but she was sharing with me uh, an article on toxic positivity mm -hmm. and how this kind of raw, raw environment could sometimes be more damaging for exactly this reason. And this person said that they had heard an author talking about that the problem with self-publishing is, is that nobody ever tells them no. And I thought that that was really powerful because it's being told no is really good for us, right? It's even though we hate it, even though we hate those experiences, and I'm thinking about like Grace, who had a small press publish one of her first books, and they put a horrible cover on it, and it didn't sell. And 
that was a, a no, right? Um, trying to query books to agents or to traditional publishing and having them be passed over, those are no's. And you take those no's and you figure out why isn't this working and you make it better. And so this is part of what I'm talking about, that why I am glad that I got all of those no's early on because it gave me a kind of grit um, and a kind of balance that the no's don't matter so much anymore. It's like, okay, well, here's one no, what's my path to yes? Um, so I think that that's a really important take home. And I hope that, that this sort of stream of consciousness made sense. Uh, send me your comments, let me know, and I will talk more about it on Monday. Uh, but I feel like this is really important. Um, no, no is good for us. So, you know, savor those. And, um, you know, this weekend, I'm going to be pretending that I live in a castle in Ireland and nobody can talk to me. What about you? <laughs> the great thing then is that I can come out of my castle. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend and I will talk to you Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.